Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for this day. And Father God in heaven, almighty God the Father, we praise you. We exalt you. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, we give you all adoration, all praise. Holy Spirit, rule and reign in our fellowship. Be exalted in our midst, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Lord, we love you, we praise you, we magnify you, we exalt you, God. Father, I pray for every single person that's here this morning, Lord. I pray that we'll be able to lay aside the cares of the world, forget about the things that's going to take place this afternoon or the things that happened yesterday. And Lord, let us dial in our minds, dial in our hearts to your word and let us learn from you this morning so we can live lives that glorify the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' mighty name I pray. All God's people said, amen. This morning we are continuing our verse-by-verse study through the book of Revelation. And this morning we'll be in Revelation chapter 7. The title of my message is the the subject theme of the the chapter we're studying. So the title is The 144,000 and the Great Multitude. Uh, I believe that this is the main main point of Revelation chapter 7 is salvation. And what you need to understand is, is God has been saving people since the beginning of time. Since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, what did he give Adam and Eve? He gave them animal skins. An animal was sacrificed, and he covered their sins and he forgave them. He brought salvation to Adam and Eve. Throughout the entire Old Testament, people were turning to the Lord, and they were getting saved. During Jesus' ministry, he went about preaching the gospel, and people were getting saved. Throughout the entire church age, throughout the entire past 2,000 years, people have been getting saved Because God is in the business of salvation. And when many people think of the book of Revelation, they think about tribulation. They think about the end of the world. They think about all these calamities and all this stuff going on. Well, friends and family, I'm here to tell you, according to Revelation chapter 7, even during the great tribulation, God will be in the business of salvation. Okay? So here's the deal. This goes for all 8 billion people on planet Earth. If you're missing out on salvation, you're missing out on the big picture. Okay? That is what every single person on planet Earth is for. That's what you are here for. The first reason that you are here on planet Earth is to experience salvation and know the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't miss out on that. People watching online, don't miss out on that. That's the most important thing That is God's plan of the ages. John 3.16 is in effect right now. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. But John 3.16 will also be in effect during the great tribulation. Okay? During the great tribulation. During the great tribulation, this future, right now we're in the church age. If you're not familiar with the book of Revelation, right now we're in the church age. But the next prophetic event is the rapture of the church, which is a moment Christ splits the eastern sky, comes again, is king, comes again to take his church home. Then the church goes into a seven-year tribulation period. Well, even during that seven-year tribulation period, thankfully, uh, God will still be saving souls. Right now, people can put their trust in Christ with little consequences in this life, okay? You know, for the most part, you can serve Christ and live a peaceable, godly life. But if you, if you wait till the great tribulation, man, it's going to be hell to pay. 
It's going to be a very difficult, as we saw last week in Revelation chapter 6, with the trials that they were going on. So what we're doing this morning is, here it is, guys. We're looking at salvation during the Great Tribulation. People will get saved during this time period. Let's take a look at it this morning. Revelation chapter 7, verse 1 says, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. So chapter 7, verse 1, we have four angels, four corners, and four winds. That's what the, the verse says. So we have four angels, one in the north, one in the south, one in the east, one in the west. This is symbolic of the four points of the compass. And they're holding back the four winds of judgment. Remember last week we looked at Revelation chapter 6. Uh, all hell was breaking loose and the judgments were coming. So these four angels here in Revelation chapter 7, the angels are pushing back. Possibly the, the four winds, the four judgments could be symbolic of those four horsemen that we saw last week. But, he, but he's pulling, pulling the veil back on the judgments in verse 1. And look at verse 2. We see a fifth angel come on the scene. Verse 2 says, I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. That's where I got in verse 1 that the angels are holding back the four winds of judgment. Uh, that's verse 2. In verse 3, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. Now, you have this fifth angel in verses 2 and 3 telling those four angels holding back the judgments, do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees until the servants are sealed. So there are servants during the great tribulation. These are people that come to Christ that he is saying now they're going to be sealed. Even in the great tribulation, God will be in the business of salvation. Praise the Lord. Now, let's talk about this. Verse 3, he says, having sealed the bondservants. What is this seal he's talking about in verse 3? This seal is a mark of ownership and approval. It's a mark of ownership and approval. Now, we're going to talk about the mark and the seal that God puts on us but according to Revelation chapter 14, this seal that's going to take place that he's going to mark them with here is going to, actually going to be a mark on their forehead that we learned from Revelation chapter 14, which I'll get there in a minute. But it's interesting. This phrase, uh, sealed, is used a lot in the Scripture. It's used a lot in Scripture. Did you know that the, God the Father set his seal on the Lord Jesus Christ? Did you know that? He did. In uh, John six twenty seven. Jesus says, do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father, God, has set his seal. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ was the eternal Son of God. He came, but he had God's uh, authority. He, got, he had the Father's approval Jesus is the exact representation of who God is. That was his plan and purpose to come to earth, was to show the world, to show us through the pages of Scripture, to show those disciples in the first century that this is who God is. And the Father's seal uh, was upon God the Father's 
seal was upon God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in his earthly ministry. So we see a seal there. Now, uh, every believer, every believer receives this seal. You know, if you're a Christian, you, you have a seal. That comes from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, where Paul says, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed. There's that word again. You were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Friends and family, have you received this seal? Have you received this seal? When I say have you received this seal, have you received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Have you committed your life to following him? Has he sealed you with his Holy Spirit? That's what it's saying there. And then, and then when you look back at the definition of what a seal is, we ask the question, does God have ownership of our life? Does God have ownership of your life or do you have ownership of your life? That's the big question. Because so many times, so many times in life, we want to take ownership of our lives. We want to run, do our own thing, have our own show, do it the way we think. And that is not the way a Christian is supposed to live. A Christian lives in light of saying, Lord Jesus, you have ownership of my life. Help me surrender my life to you. Help me live and surrender to you. Uh, ownership, approval. Does he approve of our life? Does Christ approve of how we live our life on a daily basis? Can I hear an ouch? You know, so many times, I don't know about you, but so many times in my life, I look back over my Christian experience, and I look, I look at times where I'm like, man, God was not approved. God was not approving of the way I was living in that day and age, in that time period. And thankfully, he's forgiven me. I've repented. But those are questions that we ask when it comes to this word in the New Testament for sealing. It, it's, it's, a, it's approval and it, it's ownership. Now, getting back to our text this morning, um, this is more than that. This is more than that. Verse 3 indicates uh, that, that there will be a literal marking, a literal seal on, on these tribulation saints. And that comes from Revelation chapter 14, verse 1. Where John says, Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, talking about these same people you'll see in a minute, having the, his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads. So during the Great Tribulation, they will actually have their names on their foreheads. They will be marked. And during the Great Tribulation period, uh, during this seven-year period that's coming, it's gonna, it, there's going to be a clear distinction between the godly and the ungodly. There's not going to be none of this fuzzy uh, lukewarmness in the middle. People are either, either going to be serving Christ or they're not going to be serving Christ. And it's going to be very clear uh, how, to, to how to separate the two groups of people. But the question we, that you should be asking is, who are these sealed servants? Well, let's find out what John says in verse 4. He tells us who these sealed servants are. Verse 4 says, And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. That's very important. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 
12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000, who were sealed. Who is the 144,000? Newsflash, it's not the Jehovah Witness. Okay? It's not the Jehovah Witness, and it's not the church. This is the nation of Israel. Okay, he says it clearly in verse 4. Every tribe of the sons of Israel. This, friends and family, is a beginning, the beginning harvest during the great tribulation of the harvest of souls for the nation of Israel. You see, the scriptures are Jewish. They come from the Jewish nation. They come from the Israel roots. You know, Israel was God's chosen people. And according to Romans chapter 9, chapter 10, and verse 11, uh, chapter 11, excuse me, God is not finished with the nation of Israel. And part of the great tribulation is God turning his attention back to the nation of Israel. He's turning his attention back to the apple of his eye, these Jewish people that dwell there to the, uh, the east of the Mediterranean Sea in that little strip of land that we call Israel. Uh, Listen to Joel 2.28, verse 32. A lot of people quote this passage, and they talk about the end of the church age, and there could be some application to the end of the church age. But I believe that Joel chapter 2, verse 28-32 is actually talking about God pouring out his Holy Spirit during this great tribulation hour. Let's read it. Joel 2.28 says, It will come about after this that I will pour out my Spirit on all mankind, and your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams, and your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will display wonders in the skies and on the earth. Now, guys, as we're reading this, think about last week's teaching. We were talking about all the hell breaking loose. Uh, verse 30, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it will come about that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be delivered. In Joel chapter 2, there's multiple things going on there. There's multiple things going on there. First, we see during this caption of text that the Holy Spirit is being poured out. Then we see the great tribulation. The things taking place during the Great Tribulation. And then at the very end of the verse, it says, Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. See, there's two things, two things you need to keep in mind that are taking place during the Great Tribulation. One is the outpouring of God's wrath on sin. Okay? He's going to pour out his wrath on sin. But at the same time that God is, out, is pouring out his wrath, on an evil, Christ-rejecting world, there's going to be a major outpouring of the Holy Spirit. There's going to be a major outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the nation of Israel that's going to bring them back to life. They're going to turn back to their Messiah. But thankfully, as we're going to see in the next portion of the text, there's going to be an outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the Gentile world. I, I, I believe people will have an opportunity to get saved during the Great Tribulation based on Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7, in some of your Bibles, it might say the interlude or the pause above it. But what the reason God gave us Revelation chapter 7 
was to show us that in the middle of this seven-year period, this difficult trial, that God will still be in the business of saving souls. God's not willing that any should perish, but that all come to repentance. And I, for that, I say, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. But, uh, he, but anyway, but again, this passage, bring our minds back to Israel, the, the nation of Israel. Revelation 14.4 further describes this group. Later in the text, Revelation 14.4 says, These are the ones who have not defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste, for they are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. And we go back to Revelation 14.1, knowing that this is still talking about the 144,000. You see, during the Great Tribulation, uh, the 12 tribes of Israel, I mean, some of you may, know, may, or may or may not know about this, but before Christ in the Old Testament, there were 12 tribes that made up the people of Israel, okay? And when Jerusalem got destroyed in 70 AD, all the records of the tribes, this is a known fact today, that they do not have written records of who, of what the Jewish people, what tribe they're from. But during the Great Tribulation, God is going to supernaturally, he don't need man's written records. He don't need our books or our records. God is going to supernaturally, by his spirit, bring those 12 tribes. He's going to reconstitute them. He's going to remake them into the 12 tribes of Israel. And we also know from passages in Ezekiel in the Old Testament on the future kingdom that a temple will be rebuilt. A temple will be rebuilt. So during the great tribulation, God will pour out his spirit on the nation of Israel, making this fundamental foundation, getting the picture in your mind. He's going to pour out his spirit. He's going to save Jews. He's going to reconstitute the 12 tribes. And he's going, the temple is going to be rebuilt there in Israel. And if, if those few verses weren't enough, please go back this afternoon and read all of Romans chapter 9 all of Romans chapter 10, all of Romans chapter 11, and you will see that God has a plan for the ethnic nation of Israel. I want to read to you one portion of scripture from Romans 11. Romans 11, 26 and 27. And it says, So all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come out of Zion. Talking about what we've just been talking about. He will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. God has made a covenant with the nation of Israel. They are his chosen people. They have blessed our world beyond measure. And one day he's going to turn that whole country back to Jesus. Amen? It's going to be beautiful. The 144,000 that we're studying in um, Revelation chapter 7 is a fulfilled promise to the nation of Israel. Now you might be saying, well, hey, wait a minute. How about us? I'm like, we won't be here. But how about all the other people in the world? Hold on. It doesn't stop there. Look at verse 9. Look at verse 9 of, of, of Revelation chapter 7. It says, first off, it says, after these things. So when he uses that phrase, after these things, uh, John is saying here is a new vision, a different scene, a different group of people. In verse 9 it says, I looked and behold a great multitude 
which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues. These, my friend, in verse 9, these are Gentile believers. These are Gentile believers outside of Israel that get saved during the great tribulation. Now that 144,000, it may be them in this, in this vision, may or may not be. But the bottom line is, he says there in verse 9, from every nation, all tribes, all people, and all tongues, there will be a mass revival across planet Earth. You know, this hell on earth, this tribulation, some people, common sense is going to come to them. And they're, they're going to they're be like, oh, I see what's going on. I need, to, I need to do the right thing. I need to get saved. And, and, and so a lot of people are going to come to Christ. A lot of people are going to come to the Lord. And it says a great multitude which no one could count. It means it's going to be innumerable. You know, I praise the Lord. I want millions of people. Last Wednesday, we were studying Jonah chapter 3, and we were looking at the revival that took place in ancient Nineveh when Jonah went there. Some scholars believe up to 600,000 people were there. And they weren't Israelites. They were Gentiles. And God saved them. God is in the business of salvation. That is his main prerogative on earth. Is people coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ. People being born again. And then serving him the rest of their life, all their days. But these are Gentile believers. According to globalfrontiermissions.org, I looked this up this week, there are 17,446 unique people groups in the world. According to verse 9, they will all be represented. They will all be represented in the end. You know, and again, another side note on this, authentic believers Authentic Christians, those who genuinely love the Lord and are born again or serving him, they do not judge a person or a people group by their skin, by their color, by their nationality, or by their heritage. We don't judge people like that. We don't. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ, it melts all prejudices. It teaches us to see all people as in Magadeo, created in the image of God. From inception in the womb to life's final breath. We heard that song as a little kid. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. All people. This gospel is for all people. It doesn't belong to any one country, any one people, any one political group, any denomination. It's for all people. And we have to, have to, we have to view the world through that lens that Jesus is for all. His salvation is for all. He unites us all. So this, this group, in verse, verses 4 through 8, was the nation of Israel. Starting in verse 9, or actually in verse 9, he's talking about Gentile believers. And then he continues. We're halfway through verse 9. It says, Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands. Man, I love that phrase. They were clothed in white robes. Everybody, every, everyone that's in heaven will be clothed in white robes. They'll all be equal. They'll all be there in heaven. You know, one of the things about when you join the military is when you get shipped off to MEPS, the first thing they do is they give you a bag, and they, they have you put all your civilian clothes in it. And then they put you all in the same uniform. They shave everyone's head. They put us all in the same uniform. 
Why? Because we're one team, one army, one branch of service, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, whatever branch they join. They are one team. They are one group of people that previously had nothing to do with each other, came from all walks of life. But when they come together in the military, they're one body, one team, one mission. It's the same with the body of Christ. Okay? When we come to Christ, we are one team, one body with one purpose, to serve the Lord Jesus Christ and to win the lost. Uh, Verse 10. And it says, this, this is just a beautiful scene in heaven. It says, and they cry out with a loud voice saying, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces. They fell on their faces before the throne and worship God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Here's the deal, family. The Gentiles, the Jews that come to Christ during the Great Tribulation, they are blown away at God's magnificent salvation. You know, we tell people today about salvation, and they just kind of give us that deer in the, deer in the headlight look. Like, huh? What? Okay. You know, but it won't be that way in the Great Tribulation. After they've experienced hell on earth, they'll be like, this salvation is amazing. And you and I, friends and family, if we look at life of in light of eternity and where we'd spend eternity without Christ, our faces should fall on the ground also and say, how awesome and how magnificent, Lord, is your salvation. One day this heart's going to stop beating. One day this spirit inside this physical body standing here is going to leave this world, and I'm going to step into eternity. And it's going to be on that day that I fully realize, it's going to be that day that you fully realize how great a salvation this is. When you see the glory of heaven, and you see the new Jerusalem, and you see all the promises of Scripture coming to fulfill, it's going to blow your mind. Friends and family, it's worth it. It's worth it. Stay the course. Serve Christ. Keep your eyes fixed, not on Pastor David, not on the church, but keep your eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ because you're going you're to be so thankful one day. But they are here, verse 12, verse 11 and 12. They are falling on their faces in worship and adoration to God. Salvation. Um, soteria, it means deliverance, preservation, safe from danger, safe in the arms of God. It means rescued, reclaimed, restored, emancipated, forgiven, freedom, redeemed, filled with hope. And all of that is given freely to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing you can do to earn it. It was, it was, it was purchased for you at the cross. So let's be thankful for his salvation and when, when, when life brings us down and times get difficult and the world steals all of our joy and we're in this place of carnality and in our flesh and it's hard to be thankful, think about your salvation and think about the cross. Think about his resurrection and think about his Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you. And I hope and pray that that salvation that you're thinking about that God has given you will bring you great joy in your life. When things are going south around you, put your heart, put your eyes on Christ. Verse 13. 
Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, These are clothed in white robes. Who are they, and where have they come from? I said to him, My Lord, you know. He said to me, These are the ones who came out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Man, these guys right here, these are warrior-like believers. These are Navy SEALs, special, force, special Forces believers who fought during the Great Tribulation and they refused to bow to the Antichrist because they had a backbone. They fought the fight literally. Today, you and I fight the fight spiritually, but these guys will one day fight the fight spiritually and physically. And the, 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 the tribulation period is coming. It will bring a great harvest of souls for the kingdom. And notice uh, it says their robes uh, made them white in the blood of the lamb. That's a paradox there. Blood making something white. I don't know about you, but last time I poured something red on something white cloth, kind of got ugly. It kind of got dark. It kind of got red. But he's speaking spiritually speaking here. The blood of Jesus, the crimson blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, it washes us and makes everything clean on the inside. Just as white robes are pretty and white on the outside, so we will be beautiful and white and clean on the inside. Verse 15, for this reason, for this reason, what reason? For salvation they are before the throne, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over him. You know, these, these tribulation saints, these, these men and women that have gone through it, finally they will be given a place of rest. They will be giving, given a place of rest in the great tribulation. God will cover them with his his, his tabernacle, it says his tabernacle will be over him. That tabernacle, that's, that's a word used for dwelling place. That's a, a word used in the Old Testament where God would come down and manifest his Shekinah glory over the Israelites in, in the temple and in the tabernacle. But for these uh, tribulation saints, this, this tabernacle will be God's presence. It will be God's presence, uh, God's power, in God's protection, he, he will take care of them, and he will provide for them. Look at verse 16. And they will hunger no more. They will hunger no longer, nor thirst anymore, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. These believers that come to Christ during the great tribulation, they will have endured hell on earth. And now Christ will give them rest and he will fill every spiritual and physical need that they have during the great tribulation period. You know, he will, he will fill them. He will take care of them, just like he takes care of us. He will be there, he will be with them, and he will take care of them in every sense of the word. This phrase, um, does anything, anything come to your mind when you hear the phrase, they will hunger no longer? Anything from the Sermon on the Mount? Does that, does that re make you think about anything? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, he said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. You know, there, there has to be a hunger in the heart first. There has to be a hunger in the heart of the believer. 
There has to be a hunger in the heart of the sinner for salvation, but there also has to be a hunger in the heart of the believer for, for righteousness. There has to be this hunger and this thirst. It's this thing inside of you that says, man, I want God in my life. I don't want religion. I don't want church steeples. I don't want uh, philosophy. I want the living God in my life. I want the Lord Jesus Christ in my life. That's, that, that's this hunger that Jesus promises. He says he will fill. He will fill. It's when you want him with all your heart, not half-heartedness, but wholeheartedness. And how about that phrase, um, not thirst anymore? Does that, does that bring any things that Jesus said in the Gospels to your mind? He <clears throat> says they will not thirst anymore. Jesus said in John 4, 14, But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. God, the Lord Jesus Christ, he gives us the Holy Spirit. And I like to call the Holy Spirit, his outpouring in our life, the living water. The living water. It is alive. It comes into our hearts and it refreshes us. It cleanses us. It renews us. It gives us new strength for a new day. It is everything to us that he fills our hearts and he he fills our lives. And these guys here in the great tribulation, man, they they are going to be blessed as well as you and I are also when we hunger and thirst for righteousness and when we ask for the living water. That is part of the Christian experience, is experiencing God, not just in our doctrine, in our theology, but also in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Let's finish it up, verse 17. He says, For the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What makes heaven heaven? Jesus is there. The Lord Jesus Christ. You know, it's not when we get to heaven we're going to be like, wow, look at the streets of gold. Wow, look at the tree of life. Wow, look at the river. Look at the golden rooms and and the streets of gold and all that. That stuff's going to be cool. And I look forward to checking it out. You know, in in, in the book of Revelation, it describes the size size of heaven. It's 1,500 miles uh, tall by wide. It's a perfect square. And we can talk about all those things of heaven and the layers of the streets of gold and and all the exciting things that we're going to see in heaven. We can even talk about our loved ones that we're going to see in heaven, which is really cool. But the thing that's going to blow you away the most when you get to heaven is to see the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, in his glorified state. I I believe he will still have the markings from his earthly ministry where his his hands and feet were crucified. He'll have all that, but you'll see him in his glorified state, and it's going to be amazing. And when, that day, you know, um, when we see him, it will, it will be mind-blowing. He, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the reward of heaven to see God face-to-face. Everybody likes to say, I want to see God face-to-face. Well, one day, friend, if you're a born-again believer, you will see the Lord Jesus Christ face-to-face. To see the Lord Jesus Christ, as we talked about talked about back at the beginning of, I think it was Revelation chapter 5, to see Jesus is to see perfect love. He is the definition 
of perfect love. His love is the highest love there is. He is the def- his love is the definition of love. He is perfect truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Paul said in Corinthians, for nothing can be done against the truth, but only for the truth. Jesus is the invincible truth. You will meet him as your savior or you will meet him as your judge, but he is perfect truth and nothing can change that. He is a perfect savior. In other words, when we say he's a perfect savior, he can save to the uttermost. It doesn't matter how wretched you've been. It doesn't matter how far you've fallen. It doesn't matter how deep you are in sin. He is a perfect savior. He can save people and redeem them from the pit of hell, from whatever circumstance you find yourself in. Maybe you're just lost and you're just lost in your sin, deep in the mire of sin. Well, he's a perfect savior and he can save you. Maybe you find yourself in a difficult situation in life. Things aren't going right. He is a perfect savior. He can save you and turn your life around and get things going in the right direction. He's our perfect Lord. Jesus is the perfect Lord. In other words, he is the sovereign Lord and creator of the universe. He's the one that keeps this earth orbiting the sun. He's the one that's moving the stars and the planets and the rivers and the oceans. And He's the one that spoke and the universe came into existence. The Lord Jesus Christ is a perfect Lord. And then notice in verse 17, it says he will be their shepherd. Jesus is a perfect shepherd. You need somebody to take care of you? You need someone to, you need someone to come alongside you and coach you, encourage you, and help you make decisions in life? Jesus can do that. He is a perfect shepherd. And this is not just eternity. This is not just during the great tribulation period. These truths can be applied to your life today. What was my next perfect here? Oh, he's, uh, he's perfect salvation. He's perfect salvation. In other words, if you have Jesus, you have everything and you are saved. You know, it doesn't, uh, the Bible doesn't say join the church and you will be saved or give your money and you will be saved or do this or do that or whatever religious do's and don'ts and works you may call the Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. For there is salvation in no, one, no other name given under heaven by which men must be saved at the name of Jesus. He is perfect salvation. And we see here in verse 17, that uh, look at the opening eight words, seven words. For the, lamb, for the lamb in the center of the throne. Jesus is in the center of the throne. Of heaven's throne. I close this morning with a question. Is he on the center of the throne of your heart? Family, friends, brothers and sisters, let that be your prayer today. Lord Jesus, just as you're on the center of the throne of heaven, please be on the center of the throne of my life. That's how we make it in this life. That's the, it's, it's trying times. It's difficult times. Uh, we're going through, we're, we are going today, in 2022, we are going through the most difficult days that we've experienced in a long time from wars and COVID and all the crazy going on. The, 
losing loved ones, losing friends is very challenging. The only way that we can make it is to place Jesus at the center of our hearts and lives. So that's my encouragement to you guys today. Place Jesus. Make Jesus the center of your life. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for Revelation chapter 7. Thank you, Father, for this beautiful picture of salvation in the midst of the, the great tribulation period and wrath being poured out. We see um, many people coming to you, a, a number that could not be counted. And Father, you, Lord God, you're on the center of the throne. Lord, help each and every one of us today. Let us take home this truth. Let's place you at the center of our life, at the center of our hearts. And let us love you with all of our heart, all of our soul, and all of our mind. And Father, as we saw this great multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and tongues, Lord, forgive us for judging anyone by their appearance, where they're from, what they look like. But Lord, let us see all people, red and yellow, black and white, that are all precious in his sight. You love them, Lord, and so do we. In Jesus' mighty name I pray, amen.